This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. Uh, We are going to talk about gaslighting. And in order to do that, I have a guest, Dr. Robin Stern, and she is, let me do a little intro on her and then we will introduce her. Uh, She is co-founder and associate director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Uh, She's a licensed psychoanalyst with 30 years of experience treating individuals, couples, and families, and she is the author of two books, which I found absolutely fascinating. One of them is called, yes, you're very welcome. Uh, One of them is called, let me get the books here, The Gaslight Effect, and then more recently uh, coming out now is The Gaslight Effect Recovery Guide. And uh, reading through those, I was uh, certainly impressed by your knowledge and description and use of examples of the concept of gaslighting. So, Dr. Stern, uh, Robin Stern, welcome to my show. Chris, thank you so much for having me with you and uh, for, for elevating this really important topic and including it in in your um, in your podcast series. Um, I am really thrilled to uh, have the opportunity to talk openly and publicly about gaslighting um, as much as possible. And so this is a really wonderful opportunity, especially given what you're, you do bring to the people who listen and what you've been, what you've been through yourself. I'm fascinated by just our very brief conversation early on and have a ton of questions for you. But where would you like us to start? Absolutely, yeah. I am sure uh, we could have a very, very interesting set of discussions about all of this. Um, Well, I'd like to start first off by saying I really, really liked your books. And I thought that they were informative in a way that often, uh, you know, some people who come out of academia or are very academic are not so good at that. (laughs) And and the science communication part of this is such an important part because gaslighting as a concept is, it it, it gets watered down, uh, at least when you look at it on social media or you look at it in the public discourse, you know, that, that people will tend to take these terms that have very detailed or very specific definitions or ideas connected with them, and they'll tend to water them down. Somebody lies to you, oh, he's gaslighting me. Somebody's a little selfish, oh, he's a narcissist, you know, this kind of thing. And I always, I'm always railing against that. What I I guess I wanted to start with asking, (laughs) what's your take on that? Well, it's funny that you asked me that question because I railed against it out loud in uh, the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago, with my colleague um, from Yale, Mark Brackett, and and we talked about how often these words that were maybe they're therapy words or akin to some therapy words, but certainly words that are about the human experience are misused to use your expression, watered down, certainly uh, weaponized and not specific in a way that is helpful. So I think what, um, and I appreciate the compliments about my book, but what what is helpful about my book and my writing is that people feel like I've been sitting in their living room. People feel like I've been like a fly on the wall and listening to the conversations. And in fact, in some way I have, because I've been listening to people talk about their gaslighting experiences from both sides of the gaslighting dyad um, for 30 years. 
and have been fascinated by it. Um, and so I, and I, I think that it is so important and I, it's part of my calling, if you will, to bring this out to the world in a way that people can, can hear it. So um, I, as an academic, I'm not as interested in writing for journals and uh, where other psychoanalysts and psychologists can read about it, although that I've done a little bit of that. It's not my forte. It's not my strong suit. It is my strong suit to, pe to speak to people in plain English right. and uh, to describe the experiences that they're having. I care much more about what actually happens between people than um, using a lot of language uh, that is, many people say jargon, mm -hmm. technical to describe it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you dive into the literature and of course it's, you know, very big words <laughs> to describe behavior that we all run into every day. I'm curious how this became your, you know, almost area of, I, I, well, I was happy to see it's not, this is not all you focus on. You deal with a, a, you do a lot of work around emotions and understanding emotions and emotional reactions. And I have been talking for, for quite some time now, months, maybe a year about emotional needs and the and the very very important factor that the or role that they play in our behavior in why we behave the way that we do people like to think that they're rational and logical and they sort of think things through but really so much of our behavior is driven by our emotions and and gaslighting is an aspect of that in a way um so i was really happy to see you you know you you've got a lot of work under your belt on all of this what was it that prompted or interested you about all of this in the first place? Thank you for the question. So I uh, have been fortunate to work with both women and men, but um, and people who are non-binary and uh, all kinds of relationships. However, the most, uh, the people I saw the most or the pairing that I saw the most in my practice were women coming in talking about their male gaslighters. Um, mm -hmm. And at least for many years, I would say for over a decade, that's what the presentation was in my practice. And maybe some of that was because I was involved in, in a woman's leadership institute. And so some of the women, um, when they heard what I was working on, what I was interested in, came to my private practice. And also women tend to come to therapy more easily about these things. And also women tend to give up their feelings more easily uh, in those kinds of power dynamic driven relationships than men, in my experience. Sure. And I had always um, liked the 1944 movie starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman that is mm -hmm. called Gaslight. And uh, if you have seen, have you seen the movie? I have, absolutely. Okay. I was going to offer to play you a little, <laughs> but um, we don't have to do that. Fair enough. But we, I would recommend that people watch the movie because it's it's a snapshot. Um, it's an and at the beginning, an eight minute segment happens where you see this loving and confident, smart and um, calm woman mm -hmm. uh, who is easily dismissing something that her husband is saying to her, you're so forgetful, Paula. You, you tend to forget things, he says to her as he's giving her a gift. And she says, don't be silly. I do. I didn't realize that. And then he asks her to double check. Well, are you sure you actually put this 
brooch is what he gives her a fairly fair family heirloom uh, in this bag she's carrying and he says are you sure you put it in there and she's like, don't be silly of course to eight minutes later in the movie and it could be eight weeks later or eight months later in real life um her saying maybe you're right maybe i am that forgetful mm. and what was what resonated with me is that many of my friends and many patients and clients who were otherwise strong women, strong-minded, um, easily uh, deci decisions came easily to them, um, happy and and connected to their boyfriends, their husbands, their families equally, suddenly were isolating from family and friends and in their primary intimate relationship were second-guessing their phone number, second-guessing their feelings. And um, just to connect to what you said about emotions and how they drive things, one of the, one of the ways that uh, gaslighting goes forward is that there is a, an abandoning of, your, of honoring your own emotions. Mm. And in that dynamic, you might feel anxious, you might feel scared in the moment, but you're only interested in what that's driving you to, which is st to stay connected to this guy, let's just say, sure. this guy, sure. and um, and to do what he wants, and to, to use a psychological term, but not so psychologically, to join him, to join him in his vision of the world. Right. You know, very often when you're involved with somebody, you like that imagining you're holding hands, walking into the sunset, seeing the world in the same way. People like to do that. They like that kind of togetherness. And uh, particularly women who are, and this is a little bit perhaps outdated to some people, mm -hmm. but it's still pretty present in my belief system because I'm seeing it in my practice still. And um, women are socialized to be pleasing, to be accommodating, and to be empathic, to take the other side. And sometimes we get so stuck in the other side that we forget we have a side. Yes, yeah, good point. So I was fascinated with how strong women were suddenly not so strong in their relationships and could barely remember their same strong selves and were having trouble making decisions and were, were feeling crazy and confused. And what I noticed over and over again is because there was no apparent bruise on their arm, cursing and screaming they could point to, it's kind of undermining, which I'm sure is part of the grooming process also of going of uh, bringing someone into a cult. Oh, yeah. It's like something is happening mm -hmm. and you don't know quite what it is. And so when you feel bad in a relationship or you think something is crazy, women are much more likely to point their finger at themselves mm -hmm. and say, what's wrong with me? Right. And... I'll share with you, Chris, and, and with, with our listeners that it happened to me. And it happened to me while I was writing the book and doing research. And um, I was married to 
was married, my ex-husband, um, to someone who was a good guy gaslighter. He was very affable, very pleasant, um, easy to be with. And yet um, we had this con continuous interaction about over him being late. Mm. And I would complain about it. I would sometimes get emotional about it, feeling disrespected and uh, that every single time I was making dinner, we were supposed to be somewhere. He was very late. And his response to that was, there's something wrong with the way you see time. And I initially would say, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or no, there isn't. And um, I don't like it. S plain and simple, don't like it. But over time, as he persisted in saying, you're way too rigid about time. What did your parents teach you? You really have a problem with time. Mm -hmm. I began to think, gee, did I grow up with this conception of time mm -hmm. that is really so rigid that I never, and I just was so blind to never noticing it. And as I was saying it to myself, I was thinking, no, 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 I'm writing about this. I know better. And yet the emotional pull to want to be part of, um, to be joined with him and not to be fighting with him and to have him think well of me, which he only would do if I agreed with his reality, mm. was very powerful. Right. How interesting, because you're, you've actually given a great example here of, of, of certainly of, of gaslighting, but also I can't help but relate it to the concept of coercive control and, and how coercive control basically, you know, is isolation, manipulation, and control. And gaslighting would be on the manipulation side of that. Uh, you isolate a person, of course, and then it's much more effective because other people aren't around to argue about it. And right. you can just start having your way with the person. And it's also, by definition, a repeating pattern of behavior. It's not a one-off. It right. happens, and then it happens again, and then it happens again. And it doesn't have to be physically abusive in order for it to be coercive control. And this is, and gaslighting is therefore one of the, um, you know, sort of pillars of, of how coercive control manifests in domestic relationships and, and yes. there's there's domestic violence but then there's also sort of domestic passive aggressiveness <laughs> you know this sort of this other thing that happens that's not violence and yet it can make a person anxious and even traumatized like violence will do how yes. does that happen with gaslighting as you've seen play out in relationships you've you've seen or dealt with when well, thank you for um, for bringing us to that point. Uh, I think that there is isolation when it comes to gaslighting relationships, but it happens after the manipulation. Mm. So manipulation goes on for a while, and people tell me I I couldn't talk about the relationship anymore because I I didn't feel comfortable with what I would have to say, or I was ashamed that I would put up with that or I wasn't sure who was right and who was wrong. And when you live with that kind of uncertainty over time, and then you become isolated, 
And then you're constantly, you learn how to gaslight yourself. You don't even need your partner after a while because you can play his part. And you're exhausting yourself by going back and forth. Is he right? Is he wrong? Am I right? Am I wrong? Um, you begin to, you're living with all this anxiety. You can become seriously depressed because you're isolated. You're not making decisions well. Your performance is impaired. And we know from emotion science that when you're very activated, it's harder to remember things. It's harder to think clearly. It is harder to make decisions. So the work that I do at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence and have done for all these years really dovetails very nicely in both being um, taking a part of explaining what's happening and why it's so emotionally devastating and also uh, what, gives us some guidance and some tips about how to manage it in the moment and, and ultimately to get out, managing your emotions around all of it. But um, you had sent me a series of questions and one of them was about this. You know, mm -hmm. how does gaslighting lead to trauma? Well, mm -hmm. gaslighting can itself feel traumatizing, right? Mm -hmm. But I want to be careful with that word because that's another word that is misused and um, mm -hmm. weaponized. And, uh, and it's many times not really trauma that people are feeling. They're just feeling really terrible and mm -hmm. um, really boxed in and really unable to cope. Um, and when you feel that way for a long time, you can feel like you certainly have been through traumatic ex experiences, but when people go through trauma and they are experiencing traumatic, uh, the traumatic aftermath, it tends to lessen over time. But when you are constantly in it, mm -hmm. it's not lessening. So you're, you're in this kind of um, soup of confusion destabilization mm -hmm. and what feels like toxic stress yeah exactly having been in toxic stress yeah <laughs> well let me ask you actually before i get to that let me ask you because you did because you correctly brought this up about trauma and how it also gets you know watered down in the common vernacular what are we talking about when we talk about something being taken to the level of trauma what, how, do, how, do we, how do we think about or how should we be thinking about that versus I'm feeling very uncomfortable, I'm feeling very upset, I'm mad, I'm even raging. That's different. And how is it different? It's different because people, we live in a world where there are upsetting experiences. And if every time you're upset, you are describing yourself as being traumatized it's pretty first of all it's wrong secondly <laughs> um it's it's not helpful i mean probably drawing from a lot of different things and mm. and tell me if i'm too off off the page that you want me to be on but you know we are experiencing a loneliness epidemic mm. in the, and part of the part of what feeds that is disconnection. I mean, there are lots of reasons for that, pandemic, technology, et cetera. One of the reasons is that it's hard to connect with people when you don't know what you feel, you can't communicate about it. And if you're constantly mislabeling your own feelings, then you're telling yourself a story in a way that is hard to then communicate what's authentically going on with somebody else. So if I'm upset with you because you, we were supposed to meet it 
six for dinner and or um, you were going to give me some a document you were working on and I'm waiting for it and I'm disappointed because I was really waiting for it. Mm-hmm. I if I can communicate that to you and we and you can hear my disappointment and you can maybe apologize, hopefully apologize and then uh, we can have a different interaction next time where you better respect the boundaries or the timeline or whatever. That's great. If I say to you, I'm traumatized, like I've been standing here for 20 minutes and I'm traumatized or come on, Chris, like, where's the document? You're, you're traumatizing me. Mm-hmm. What does it, what does that mean? Right. Right. So in, in some sense, it loses its meaning. It's great that people are brave enough to talk about mental health issues, but it's not great when people can't be specifically, um, uh, let me say that in a more positive way. Of it's course. <laughs> better, it's much better when people can be granular about what they feel and talk specifically um, and accurately about the feeling they're having so that the person on the other end knows. Because after all, it's a basic human need to feel seen and understood. That's right. That's right. And when I think about like just bringing this back to this conversation, when I think about what's happening in cults mm-hmm. and you tell me because you were there mm-hmm. like they're not interested in your feelings oh no 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 it's not about your no it's not about your feelings at all um in fact i was going to go there because because it leads right to this um there is there are, i would you agree or would you say or describe that there are layers of the consequences or the effects of of a concentrated campaign of gaslighting on a person i mean there's yes. There's, Absolutely. You, you keep pushing and pushing and pushing and and the effects become stronger and stronger to the point where yes, they, they do were, become trauma. I, I'm where they can. Yeah, they can become can. trauma. Yes. Certainly there's stress to the point where um, you can't handle it mm-hmm. anymore. Where And when it becomes when it, you're at the point where you are not functioning because of what's happening, then uh you are experiencing trauma to your system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wanted to uh, just to just to comment really quickly on what we were just talking about there, what you were describing with the communication of how you were feeling, and then bringing in these you know bigger words: gaslighting, trauma, narcissism. Right. I think one of the problems with that, one of the big problems with that, is that a person will then start defining or identifying themselves in ways that are actually much more serious than they really are <laughs> and and can and can get a self image that is that is you know not really reflective of of the reality of the situation for their own mental health and they can think it doesn't actually... allow them to move forward i can't yeah. because i'm i'm traumatized one of the things that that um i think is a really important distinction is that not every traumatic situation or um for example not an even after 9-11 or even after a car crash or even after horrific um, fire in a school, for example, not everyone is traumatized by that situation. Right. That's right. So we, um, I have many conversations with a colleague at Columbia who you might want to have on your show, George Bonanno, mm. who, uh, who's an expert in trauma and resilience. And um, he talks a lot about potential trauma. Mm. Like is potential trauma in 
in gaslighting relationships for sure. It doesn't mean that everyone will experience trauma. Right. Gaslighting relationships. That makes sense. It really depends on what you walk in with, what kind of resilience, what kind of emotional um, uh, gifts, if you will, what kind of emotional strategies you walk in with. Sure, sure. I imagine it might also help um, having good connections that you know that you can unload to, or that you can talk to, or that you can bounce ideas off of, where the the effect of the gaslighter is you know is, is mitigated or minimized by is crazy, right? You know, kind of kind of conversations, you know. It's very often, and even in the nineteen forty four movie, it's a third party mm-hmm. suddenly wakes you up to the fact that wait a minute, this is crazy. Right. How did you get out? Like, did that happen for you? Was it other people who helped you? Oh, me in terms of my cult experience? Yeah. I woke up, uh, sort of got myself out on my own, actually, but I had a support system that enabled me to have the food and the shelter and a transport and the, you know, sort of Maslow's bottom line needs yes. cared for so that I could do that work. Um and it was and it was hard. I, I've I've uh, analogized it or or stated it as like a an irrefutable, undeniable moral transgression <laughs> sort of snaps you out of it. You know, you go, wait a second, what do you mean I have to not talk to my mom anymore for the rest of my life? What <laughs> you know? And when that hits you in the face, where it's easy to deny or or just kind of put it off or not think about it when it happens to other people. Oh, well, they deserved it. Or, oh, there's some circumstances I don't understand as to why this guy has to disconnect from his mom or mm-hmm. his or has to divorce his wife or his kids no longer talk to him. Oh, well, I can rationalize that somehow. But when it hits home in some significant way, either to you directly or to others around you that you can't deny, you can't refute, I think that's when the, when the, the shift happens. You know, so some tremendous break with your values would have to happen in order for you to continue to buy in. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. To, to 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 start questioning, yeah. because because the whole point of extreme belief or cultic belief or or going down that that rabbit hole of commitment is that you're giving up or letting go of your critical thinking skills on that topic. Right. You just don't think about it the same way you think about other things. In kind of it's kind of analogous to falling in love. You know, you only see the benefits, you don't see the flaws. And how does that happen for you? Like how did it happen for you? Well, I I see uh, my experience as a second generation member was um was different from a first gen which would be uh, have a conversion story. My for me, I grew up in it. I, there was never any paradigm other than the cult paradigm. So, you know, it's not any different than growing up in a Muslim home or a Christian home or this is just how the world is. And you, when your parents and all of your social connections, all of the friends of my parents and family and everybody are all on the same page, you have no reason to question what's going on. And again, no critical thinking. And so nobody ever really asked me if I wanted to be a Scientologist. It was just, here it is. This is how the world is. Didn't you know, right? And, and it took many, many years to break out of that uh, sort of model. And did you go to school during those years? I did. Yeah, public school, public education, graduated high school. And I was recruited to start working for Scientology right out of high school. 
So 25 years, uh, you know, two and a half decades of commitment to working for Scientology. It was above average commitment. I wasn't just a regular Joe Blow Scientologist. I was I was saving the world. <laughs> and, and there's, you know, and there's lots of, uh, you know, a laundry list of emotional needs being fulfilled by, you know, those kind of activities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, so it was my life commitment. And I, and I was dead serious about it. I was a true believer. And, in, and one of the points, one of the things that happened to me that, I'm, that I wanted to ask you about here, because I've described it as a period where there was a process done on me that was not just done on me. It's done on other people in the, in the Church of Scientology. It's called the Truth Rundown. And, it, and, I, and I can't describe the entire thing here, but I will say that I have summarized it by calling it concentrated gaslighting. Because it's a direct attack on your memory and a, and, a, and a purposeful effort to get you to rewrite your memories. What you saw, what you experienced didn't happen. And it didn't. That's fascinating. So how yeah. does that happen? Is that you're sitting with somebody and they're asking you to tell your story and then one by one they're saying that never happened? Like what no, is that? It's, it's, actually, it's actually worse. Um the way it works is in Scientology, um, there is a concept that if you are critical or fault finding or upset with someone or something, it's because of your own moral transgressions against that someone or something. You you did something to them, or you've done things that you're you're withholding of a moral nature. Uh, you they these they call these in, like sins in Scientology. Mm-hmm. They call these overts. And Hubbard wrote uh, very, very clearly over and over again that overts right. are are the cause of uh, overts, overts, overt acts, these sins, okay. these 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 things you do that are bad. You mm-hmm. stole from somebody, or you lied to them, or you hurt them, or you hurt somebody around them, and you didn't tell them, right? This kind of thing. Um, this is very, very big in Scientology, and there's this procedure of called the called the Truth Rundown where. The idea is if you are spreading what's called black PR, if you're spreading black information, misinformation, fake news, so to speak, about someone, a Scientology principal, David Miscavige, the head of Scientology, or some executive or some aspect of Scientology, um, if you're complaining about it, then it must be that you have these moral transgressions and we're going to we're going to do a confessional process on you where you're going to c- confess to all of your crimes and and if you have been spreading this bad news like for example i made in all the years i was in scientology somewhere between 20 and 50 dollars a week that's the pay that's what you get but if you complain about that and talk about how they're denying you money and you're not making money and they don't pay their staff and and it's all really bad. If you say the truth of that, they will sit you down and you will do this, you know, and I was I did this truth rundown process. It's not everybody does this, but it but for the C organization, for the the elite, this is part of it. And they'll make you confess. And what they're looking for is not just confessions of a random nature, they're looking for confessions of serious crimes on the subject matter on which you are being critical and spreading this bad fake news that they, they're calling it fake news, even though it's not. So here you are complaining about the pay. Well, that means you must have stolen some money. 
That means you must have ripped off the pay some. That means you must be extorting money from the church because otherwise you wouldn't be thinking this way and you wouldn't be spreading this black PR, see? So we're going to make you confess. And this is a very, very, in, in, you know, it's an interrogation. It's very akin to um, a police interrogation, only it uses this electronic device called an meter. And so there's a lot of reinforcements here built in to prime you to think it's all on you. It's so not. basically, they're making up a story. They're giving you the new narrative yes. that you have to swallow whole that is absolutely not true. In fact, you have to make up that new narrative in conformity with their demands, which makes it stick even harder because you have to sell yourself on the fact that through this confession process, you have to sell yourself on the fact that you didn't experience what you experienced. You didn't see what you saw. And in fact, it was all due to your own crimes, and therefore you're, re you're literally rewriting your own memories of what happened to you and how you should communicate about it. And you're not done with this process until you originate on your own bat. You have to keep confessing crimes until you originate. You know what? I have been fooling everybody. I've been lying to everybody. I owe everybody an apology. And you got to write letters of apology. I lied. I said these things, and it was so bad of me. And this is the process of what's called the truth rundown. In, in a nutshell, there's there's you know there's lots of details, but that's that's it in a nutshell. And I have called this process concentrated gaslighting. I, it's yes, the most powerful form of thought reform that Scientology has. It's and, wow. It's I mean it should be against the law, right? Um, so I, I wanted to give this to you because I wanted to ask you. What do you think? It's pretty. Have you heard of anything else like that? Because I think that's pretty extreme. Well, I have heard of it through um, the stories of other cult members, mm -hmm. not in Scientology, but in other cult members. But mm -hmm. I, I'm still fascinated, uh, which mm -hmm. is what brought me into this topic to begin with. Yeah. With, do you remember having that struggle with yourself about? But wait a minute, I saw that. Or wait mm -hmm. a minute, it's not okay to mm -hmm. to be being paid $20 or $50. I mean, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And then grabbing onto this new, this hook, and then having to tell yourself a new narrative. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when you gave up your old narrative in mm -hmm. favor of the other? Or did you not give it up? but you had to pretend you gave it up. It was a little bit of both at the same time, if that, and I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, oh, it was, does. Yes. It, it, I had to live with two realities at the same moment, right? The cognitive dissonance was strong because, uh, you know, because that's what that is, right? And it was, um, it was, okay, this has to be, I have to conform with this and it has to make sense to me. Therefore, yes, my crimes, my overts, are causing me to want to speak out, be critical, be nasty, you know, be upset. That's on me because of my stuff. And it probably wasn't as bad as I'm remembering it, you know, because look what overts do to your memory. They make you out that you're the victim when you, in fact, you're victimizing others. And so I've already been rewriting my memories. And so now I need to write them to what the reality of the situation was. And that's kind of what was going on in my head. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought I wanted to bring all of this up because I wanted to ask you about this business of memory rewrite because I've experienced it. I've labeled it as, as concentrated gaslighting because um, within my experience, it conforms with the definition exactly. But I wanted to ask your opinion, you know, and also your experience with how, how far can that go in terms of um, mental health damage to people in, in rewriting their own emotional and, and, and you know, in real life memories. I, I think it's devastating. Yeah. Um, it, it's devastating whether you, I mean, there's no good news about it. Right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> um, if you, if you don't really believe it, but you know, you have to accommodate it because this big, scary person or big, scary organization is um, telling you that this is your story and you have these overts and you're not you're not going to get out of there until you can confess uh, and you do it. That's not good because then you're subjugating to someone else and you're you're basically not you're, you're not honoring your feelings. And if you come to believe it, then you are rewriting your emotional life, which is never going to work out well for you because we don't, well, this is so such an interesting conversation because mm. we teach at the Yale Center um, that even though emotions come unbidden, they're connected to your cognition. So if we're taking a walk in the woods and um, I am someone who studies the life of spiders um, and you are terrified of spiders and we see something crawling up a tree, I might be excited because, wow, that may be a spider and you're screaming and running in the other direction. Right. And so it is, um, in some ways it's governed by the way you think. So what you're feeling in that situation is governed by your, your mindset, your predisposition with that particular thing. So how clever is it of the cult to take that knowledge that it's about the appraisal and to make you change your appraisal of the situation? No, I'm not being abused here. I, I ha I'm wrong. I have the wrong idea of the way the world works. And so all I have to do is to change the way I think in order to change the way I feel, and then I'll be happy. That's right. And in fact, when we teach um, positive reappraisal, which is a really uh, well-researched uh, asset in emotion regulation, you know, you're feeling... I'm really mad at you because you didn't do something uh, that I was expecting you to do and we're at work together. And rather than saying, you know, he's a loser, like why I'm not going to do another project with him. I could reappraise the situation and say to myself, in order to have more positive feelings and to see you with more positive regard. Okay. So Chris, um, you know, he's kind of new on this job. He just doesn't know everything he needs to know and, and he'll get up to speed and, Okay, so I'm I'm going to be good with that. Let me let me give him compassion, and I'll be good with that. Mm -hmm. it, it's a slippery slope, and it's a slippery slope because of exactly what you just described. Mm. That there's a, a re-education about the way the world works, and you're doing it wrong. 
And so when you agree that you're doing it wrong, then you're doing it right. And everyone can be happy. But you're not going to get out of that. What did you call it? A truth? Oh, the truth rundown. Yeah. You're not going to get out of that truth rundown until they have convinced you that you need to convince them. That's right. That you um, now know the truth and you can apologize, ask for forgiveness. Um, uh, they can forgive you and everyone's happy. That's right. That's exactly right. And you're not done until you do that. And it's and it's quite interesting because it can take many, 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 many hours of work. I, um, I not only had that done on me, but I was in a program where I did that on two other people as well. It's a whole process. And it's um it's 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 really quite something it's one of of many such thought reform uh, techniques that are in scientology it's it, it, there are probably a few hundred of them in that group it's it's really quite extensive and we could actually argue the the crazy making thing about it is mm. we could um potentially argue the other side of it well you know what's bad about that Oh, very right. much so. Oh, David Miscavige would love this, right? Because he, as the leader of Scientology, because he has been accused by multiple people over the years of beating on them, of physical violence against them. And what happens after the fact of that is they receive one of these truth rundowns or they'll get a, this confessional process done on them where it is made abundantly clear to them, he didn't beat on you. That's not what happened. Right. You got you got punished because you deserved it. That's what happened. And, uh-huh. Right. And it's just it, it starts as a subtle rewrite. And then by the time you're done. Oh, he never beat me. He never touched me. I was I was disciplined and I deserved it. And that's how the person is now thinking about it. In a, right. you know, and in a, so it, it's a an all consuming mm-hmm. um, bubble of gaslighting that's out of real life. But the real or the the. Uh, if you will, the softer version, and it's not at all soft of, of like a, or a softer gaslighting story that um, was so extreme that I didn't even think people would believe me when I was first writing mm. stories about uh, people experiencing it. Couple moves to another state because um, he is in medical school. And so she, her good girlfriend, connected to the relationship, follows him. And uh, they then go out for their first anniversary after being there for a year, their anniversary of moving to the state, of her following him, of their love. And at dinner, uh, she, girl, begins to tear up. And he says, I know it's wonderful that we've been here for a year together and and we love each other so much. And she's no, well... It, that's right, and I do love you, but actually, I'm tearing up because I miss I miss our families mm. in in the East Coast. The guy flipped out, threw the silverware. He was they were in a restaurant. They threw the silverware on the floor, slammed his fist on the table, and said, "You know, fuck you for ruining our dinner." And she said, "Well, wait a minute. I didn't like. I, I just am tearing up." By the end of that dinner. She was on her knees at his side, at the, t- at the side of the table, begging him to forgive her for ruining her the dare dinner. Right. That's and it, yep. she came to me saying, 
Dr. Stern. Like, why am I ruining every time we're together? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Just they're made they they that they're made to believe they're the perpetrators. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. wanted to ask in the in the in a cult paradigm, but of course this is very much true in a coercive relationship where you have the you know as you mentioned earlier the the power dynamics are all out of whack. You have um, this authority figure, uh, whether it's a cult leader, whether it's a spouse, uh, right. whether it's a parent, even uh, if we if we go there, um, you have people who are susceptible to you know, giving a lot of breaks to individuals because of this. They, they grant them whatever degree of authority or care or emotional investment. How, once that happens, this is the big, this is the big burning question for me for, my, for trying to help my audience is, you know, we all commit. We all have things that we give over to, uh, whether it's groups we're part of, religions we're part of, you know, ideologies that we get all hyped up about. What are the red flags? What are the little bells that can go off in a person's mind that that they sh that they really need to be paying attention to when these instances of gaslighting are being perpetrated on them, and they're not necessarily thinking that way. They're not like, "Oh, he's gaslighting me," because they're not going to go there right away. Right. What? How can they arm themselves for any situation? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'll actually read you. Um, a list of the red flags, but uh, but I mm. want to say something before that before I read that list, um, which is that it's very tempting when you're in a relationship and there are good times and not so good times, mm. or to put it in this paradigm, abusive times and the rest of times. It's easy um, for your own psychological and emotional needs and for the preservation of the relationship to look at the picture of the relationship, if you could imagine it as a picture, only on the side of the good things or the rest of the things. And you ignore those things that are the abuse or they become the, the you know, the figure ground um, exercises that your doctor makes you do when you're young and look at, you're getting glasses or the uh where some things recede into the background and some things come into the foreground you can look at the same picture there's a classic one where there are two faces two women's faces and then you it recedes and what you see is a vase instead there are uh, visual experiments sure do you know what i'm talking about yeah Anyway, if listeners don't, I apologize, and um, I would look up figure ground experiments. They're actually fascinating because it's exactly what happens. So you, you're you looking at this picture, but you're not seeing the whole picture at the same time. Right. And then there is something called the halo effect, which means that you know if I think you um, are, are handsome, then I'm likely to think you're smart, and I'm likely to imbue you with other good qualities. Mm -hmm. And um, it's easy if you've grown up as an accommodator to think, you know what, it's okay, I'll just do it this way for him. Or um, if you want, I want to please you, I want to make you happy, you're going to be so happy if I just agree with you, I'm just not going to give you a hard time. Um, or if you don't want conflict, which is another way of saying I want to please, I don't want conflict. And 
if you've grown up in a home where relational dynamics are such that one person gives over to someone else rather than there being an exchange where they meet in the middle or sometimes it's one person, sometimes it's the other, you're watching that power dynamic and it's okay. Um, what happens in gaslighting relationships that really is happens from the beginning is that you feel your feelings at the beginning, but you don't honor them. Mm. So here I'm feeling like really nervous because we don't agree, but rather than thinking to myself, my feelings are more important than who's right and who's wrong. The fact that we're arguing and going back and forth, that's okay. But the fact that I feel bad, I'm just going to forget about that. Like I'm going to pursue the relation, the, the who's right and who's wrong conversation right? rather than opt out and say, I just, you know, we can talk about this another time. I, it just doesn't feel right anymore. Or um, I don't want to hang around when the heat is this high right. in the room. So let me see if I can find you my list. Um, cool. Yeah, I, 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 I think um, you're talking about, uh, you know, demonstrating some degree of emotional intelligence with ourselves and, mm -hmm. and sort of self-awareness of our emotional states, which is something I talk about a lot. As, yes. as something to sort of cultivate within yourself because, you know, I find a lot of people don't even realize they have emotional needs, <laughs> much less have an awareness that this is something they should be gauging or being paying attention to in the same way you might notice if you have a stomach ache or, you know, yes. a, a bad leg or something, you would do something about that. Yeah. Emotionally. And you, so you know. right now in schools, 5,000 schools all over the America and many in other places around the world, like Italy and Mexico and Spain, we are teaching young kids how to um, recognize, understand, label, express, and regulate their emotions. We Our approach to emotional intelligence is called the ruler approach. Right. And um, it, it, the undergirding of that are, is the mindset that emotions matter. I mean, you're saying in your in the life of cult, what matters is the way you think, and that can be easily manipulated. That's where they're coming in yeah. to uh, to help you do it right, right. They're telling you about your thinking, and your feeling is obviously not important. Right. Nobody's schooling you on. Wait a minute. If I feel fear. That means there's impending danger. What's the danger? Then that's not the conversation you're having. It's if you feel fear, you're thinking about it the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, good point. So good point. the and, and so you also, are you being also in that paradigm, of course, you also learn to redefine your emotions. So fear becomes respect. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> used to do that in Scientology but, all the time. And, but it's so clever yeah. and horrific and abusive the way they do it because the way they do it is by manipulating your thinking so that you're thinking about it differently. So I shouldn't have been afraid of him. I should have been respecting him. It's my, my messed up thinking. That's right. It's my overt. That's it's right. My That's right. That's exactly how it works. So what, what red flags do you have for us here? So if you find yourself constantly second guessing yourself, Asking yourself questions like, am I too sensitive? Am I too paranoid? Um, is this my fault a dozen times a day? Right. If you feel confused, 
and even crazy sometimes in your relationship or at work. If you're always apologizing and pointing the finger at yourself when there's something wrong in the relationship, if you're frequently wondering if you're good enough, if you can't understand why here you have this good life and yet you're really not happy, you're perhaps anxious all the time or depressed all the time. In fact, that's one of the things that people came into, into my therapy office with frequently. Like, I don't get it. Like, I have a really good life. Like, my husband loves me, tells me all the time, and and I just am, like, anxious and miserable. Um, you, you buy clothes for yourself or make decisions about what you're doing, thinking about your partner and his needs and whether he's going to like it rather than your own. You frequently make excuses for your partner or your cult's behavior to yourself um, when you're still when you're still thinking straight. And in the case of having a partner, you stop talking to people about it because you don't want to make excuses anymore, and you become ashamed. Right, there we go. You find yourself withholding from information from family and friends so you don't have to explain or make excuses anymore. You know something's terribly wrong but you just can't figure out what it is. He's such a nice guy, or he's so romantic. He sends me flowers all the time, or, okay, so, you know, he loses his temper once in a while, but I, he probably didn't have good parenting. You have trouble making simple decisions. You start lying to avoid being put down and to avoid having reality twists happening in your conversation, because that's the hallmark of gaslighting, that there's a pivot in the conversation. Yeah. I'm complaining to you about something you did. Suddenly it's my fault. And that's exactly what you described. There we go. Before your partner comes home, you run through a checklist in your head to anticipate anything you might have done wrong that day. You have a sense that you used to be a very different person, more fun-loving, more confident, experiencing more joy, more relaxed. You feel as though you can't do anything right. Your kids, your friends say things that are trying to protect you from your partner. You find yourself upset with people who you've always gotten along with before because they're challenging your life. And the worst piece is um, when people feel like their their identity has been trampled on and their souls have been destroyed. They feel hopeless and they feel joyless. There you go. There you go. Well, thank you very much for that list. I'm sure people will be able to relate to that pretty easily if they have those situations going on. We're unfortunately, and I am really, really uh, amazed at how fast the time flew here. We are we are out of time. We have to I go. I know. I was just feeling the same. Uh, like, I hope we can do this again, whether my pot or happy absolutely. to come back here. Yeah. I think the conversation particularly when you talked about the um, running through the, I'm sorry, I'm blocking the name. Of oh, the, the truth name. rundown. Yes. The truth rundown. Yes. Um, it's so horrible. I'm blocking the name. Um, <laughs> so thinking about how close that is in, uh, in dynamic to just reappraising the situation, how easy it is to reappraise a situation so that you feel better yeah. and everybody feels better, but, but, it's crazy. It's crazy town. It's crazy town. Exactly. It's the exact opposite of the truth. <laughs> Run down. No authenticity no. and um, and no way out until right. you get out. 
That's right. Exactly. Very much so. Um, Chris, I so appreciate being here with you. And um, thank you. Thank you for bringing this to the world and all of your good work. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. It was a real pleasure meeting you and talking with you today and becoming familiar with your work. And, you know, we haven't even touched Hubbard's emotional tone scale, where he actually took all the emotions and graded them with numbers and put value assignments on them from top to bottom. And, oh, well, uh, we must have oh, that must conversation. Over this. Yes. <laughs> we <laughs> must do that. There's no question about it. Exactly. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with this thought to counter that. Mm. There is an app called How We Feel, and mm. it has a little heart icon. And it was built by a team of us at, I can't, let's see. It was built by a team of us at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence with a generous donation from uh, the uh, people from Pinterest. Oh, uh, we had a an app called How We Feel. So now, did you see the little heart? Mm. Oh, it's, yeah, there he goes. Yeah, and it is a really wonderful emotion journal. It gives you skills and tips and uh, helps you increase your vocabulary every single day with wonderful strategies that you may not have never have thought of and some that you have thought of. And I recommend people use it to check in with their feelings. Excellent. Excellent. Well, check out the app. Check out her book, The Gaslight Effect and The Gaslight Effect uh, Recovery Guide, which is just coming out. I can't, I'll put links to this stuff uh, and to your website in the description here. Thank you for your time, folks out there. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for watching. I hope you got something out of this. As always, I hope that this was informative, educational, and entertaining. And I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, everyone.